If you have a Bible with you, or maybe on your phone or something, open your Bibles up to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. We're between series right now for a couple weeks, and so we're looking at some different encounters with Jesus in the Gospel of John. And this week, like last week, we're going to read a smaller portion of a larger story. We're going to read John chapter 4, beginning at verse 4 and ending at verse uh, 30. Uh, Give your attention to the reading of God's Word. And Jesus had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field of Jacob, uh, given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city for food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw the water with, and the well is deep. Where are you going to get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, and I won't be thirsty, and I won't have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. Uh, We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will teach us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, What do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into the town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. 
Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. This is God's word. The early 4th century Ephraim the Syrian, uh, from the area that we know as Turkey, summarizes the story we have just read like this. Jesus came to the fountain as a hunter. He threw grain before one pigeon that he might catch the whole flock. At the beginning of the conversation, he did not make himself known to her. But first she caught sight of a thirsty man, then a Jew, then a rabbi, afterwards a prophet, last of all, the Messiah. She tried to get the better of a thirsty man. She showed her dislike of the Jew. She heckled the rabbi. She was swept off her feet by the prophet, but finally she adored the Christ. It's a pretty apt summary of this story. It's a series of uh, misapprehensions are cleared away. My assumption is that we all need to encounter Jesus like this woman did. We all misperceive him at first, and those misperceptions must be stripped away. Just like this woman, uh, this woman, we perceive who Jesus is precisely as Jesus digs into our lives and deals with things that need dealt with. At first, this conversation is simply about water and a well, but as Jesus digs into her personal life and her religious views, she begins to see him better. This morning, I want to focus on four basic truths from this passage. Jesus shows us real acceptance. Jesus gives us real life. Jesus meets our real needs, and Jesus leads us in real worship. First, Jesus shows us real acceptance. Jesus shows us real acceptance. Jesus had left Judea to avoid controversy. And with his disciples, he sets out on what was typically a three-day journey from Jerusalem up to Galilee. They're almost about the halfway mark on a map, and they arrive at this town called Sychar on the shoulder of Mount Gerizim near the ancient city of Shechem. We're told it's midday, the sixth hour, about lunchtime. The sun's at its highest, it's hot. Jesus is weary, he's tired out from the trip, and he's thirsty. So he sits by a well while his disciples head into town to the AMPM to grab some groceries for lunch. And as Jesus is sitting by this well, or maybe on a built-up rock lip around the well, along comes a woman to draw her water. We don't know if there was other people there drawing water or if they were the only people there. Perhaps there were others, and he notices something different about her as she comes. And Jesus strikes up a conversation. Now, in our culture, there's nothing particularly striking about this. You might be sitting by the fountain at the mall. I don't know if the mall in Bellingham has a fountain, but certainly the one down in Alderwood does. You might be sitting there waiting for someone in a shop and you strike up a conversation with someone near you. There's no big deal about that. But in Jesus's day, this would have been unusual for a number of reasons. As we see from the disciples' response in verse 27, they're astonished, even dumbfounded. And they all wanna know, what is she doing here? What are you talking to her for? We get a handle on why this is astonishing if we widen our focus for a moment and consider John chapter 3 and 4 together. 
In John chapter 3, a man named Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. This is midday at noon, but he comes at night under the cover of darkness. And he also has a conversation with Jesus about what it means to have eternal life. And in that conversation, John, uh, Jesus tells Nicodemus uh, this, this following verse, which is perhaps one of the best-known passages in Scripture. Jesus tells Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now when we hear that, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life, our instinct is to qualify whoever. Jesus means whoever is more or less like me, right? Whoever is pretty much a good person. Uh, whoever is righteous. Whoever, uh, you know, with some way we qualify it. Jesus can't really mean whoever, whoever, like anyone. But John does something really brilliant in the way he tells Jesus' story in this gospel. In chapter 3 and chapter 4, John juxtaposes conversations between Jesus and two people from totally opposite ends of the social spectrum. He puts these two stories together to emphasize that when he says, whoever believes in him, he really means whoever. Think about this for a minute. Nicodemus was a Jew, and this woman was a Samaritan. Now, hundreds of years earlier, there was a split between Judah in the south with its capital in Jerusalem and Israel in the north with its capital in Samaria. And in both kingdoms, the well-to-do people were taken off into exile by Assyria and Babylon. But in the northern kingdom, Assyria left all the poor people in the area, and they resettled different pagan people among those poor people. And those people intermarried, and over time, they ended up being this group that we call the Samaritans, named after the capital city of Samaria. In Jesus' time, there have been several hundred years of ethnic tensions between the Samaritans and the Jews. And so this woman says, what are you doing a Jew asking me, a Samaritan, for a drink? Don't talk to me. Right? And, and John even tells us, for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And so in modern day terms, we might say Nicodemus is like a modern Jew living in Jerusalem. And this woman is like a Palestinian, right? That they live in the same area, but they really don't want to have much to do with each other. And Nicodemus was a man, and this woman was, of course, a woman. And in the ancient world, uh, including in Israel, men had more social standing than women. They had more rights. And in fact, some rabbis actually discourage even bothering to talk to women. And yet Jesus is not, uh, he doesn't take on the sexist attitude of his culture. He's not bound by it. Jesus calls Nicodemus a teacher of Israel. He's well-educated, an expert in theology. But in 4.22, as we've seen, this, uh, Jesus tells this woman bluntly, you worship a God you don't even know. You're ignorant. And Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was scrupulously moral. We'd look at him and we'd say, that is an upstanding citizen. He does everything right. But this woman, we come to find out, has been married five times and is now living with a sixth man. Totally opposite ends, a Jew and a Samaritan, a man and a woman, uh, well-to-do, a ruler with power, and this woman who's coming at midday, not even at the normal time to collect weather, uh, water, uh, because she's, she's isolated. Uh, a very moral person, well-educated. On the other hand, uh, someone who's given to loose living and is ignorant. And yet they are all welcome to come to Jesus. So John is driving home for us this point. 
When Jesus says, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, he really means whoever, anyone, regardless of ethnic group, education level, gender, social standing, or even what you have done in the past. Everyone needs Jesus, and Jesus shows real acceptance. Now, friends, you may be here today, and this is a real point of tension for you. And if so, I want you to hear this, even if you don't hear anything else this morning. You may be saying to yourself, I don't really qualify for Jesus, given my background. Surely it's not for me, given what I've done, where I've been, what relationship I've been, I'm, I've, I'm, I'm in. Maybe you're thinking, Jesus wouldn't want me if he knew about my anger problem or about the way that I use other people, or that I gossip about them, the way I manipulate people. If he knew about my lust, he wouldn't really want me. But friends, Jesus shows us real acceptance. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, whatever part of society, whatever their background, whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. In passing, I want to notice as well that when Jesus shows us real acceptance, he's also giving us a model of what real acceptance looks like. He is tired and thirsty. He's on a trip. I don't know if you've been on vacation, you're tired, you're worn out, you pull into a gas station, and someone comes up and you think, I don't want to talk to this person, I'm just going to pretend like I don't speak English or something, right? Have you guys been in this situation? Maybe I'm the only one that's that antisocial. But Jesus is in that situation, but he doesn't just try and ignore her. He doesn't go hide behind a tree or try and, you know, pretend like he's not going to talk to her. He sees here, even in his tiredness, his thirstiness, his weariness, he sees an opportunity, an opportunity for a life-changing spiritual conversation, and he seizes on it. I had a professor when I was at Regent College who encouraged our class on this point, uh, and he told the story that apparently earlier that term, he had been invited to a party, and at this party, uh, people were watching the film Terminator 2. I don't know if you've seen this or not, but after the movie was over, he began to draw out in a conversation with some of the people at that party the parallels between Terminator 2, where the Terminator is sent back in time into a different world to save lost people, uh, and the gospel, where Jesus is sent into our world to save us. Okay, This is not an analogy that I would come up with on my own, but he didn't lose the opportunity for a spiritual conversation. Uh, and in fact, this is the most surprising part of the story, is a couple weeks later, a couple that he had talked to about Terminator 2 and the gospel at this party, Googled his name, found out that he taught at the school, and showed up in the parking lot to talk to him more about Jesus. So Jesus shows us this example that real acceptance means never missing an opportunity to get to know someone, to strike up a conversation, perhaps to have a life-changing spiritual conversation with them. There's a second truth in this passage. Jesus gives us real life. Jesus gives us real life. In verse 9, Jesus simply asks for a drink, and the woman's response is rather rude and actually tries to get rid of him. She falls back on the old racial stereotypes. Isn't this ironic? You, a Jew, need to drink from me, a Samaritan. But in verse 10, Jesus doesn't let her get rid of him. Instead, he reframes the whole discussion. He says, if you knew the gift of God, the gift of God, if you knew about God's grace, it would change everything. 
Again, this is spelling out John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He's saying, if you knew about the gift of God, God's grace, it changes everything. Yes, I know the old stereotypes, the old racist tropes, but grace changes everything. He says, real life, real life that I give is about living in this grace. And Jesus says, if you knew who I am who is talking to you, if she knew about Jesus' mission and identity, then she would ask him for a drink and he would give her living water. Now this phrase living water is uh, uh, the typical phrase that you would use for flowing water, right? Water that's flowing, it's fresh, it's clean. Maybe you know this from hiking, right? That you can drink moving water before you drink stagnant still water. Uh, and certainly that's how this woman understands it, is that he simply means flowing clean water. And she plays along with him, but she sort of thinks, okay, maybe this guy's crazy, right? He's saying, I'll give you a drink, even though he has no bucket to draw water. This well is like 100 feet deep. Uh, and she, she says, uh, you know, travelers often have buckets, but obviously uh, he doesn't have a bucket with him to pull water out. Otherwise, he'd do it himself and not ask her for a drink. So she's kind of playing along, humoring him. And she says, surely you're not better than Jacob, our ancestor, who dug this well. Uh, and there's the irony, right? That if she only knew who was talking to her. But again, Jesus doesn't let her dismissive, patronizing response turn him away. Jesus says, this living water quenches your thirst. She will never thirst again. And it becomes a spring of water that will well up within her. That is to say, this life that Jesus gives flows out of the person who receives it to others. It gives life to others. And this real life that Jesus gives ultimately is life everlasting. Life in fellowship with God. Life to the fullest. But this woman is locked into her natural frame of reference. Jesus is now clearly talking about something spiritual when he says eternal life. Right? In verses 14, 15. Clearly he's talking about something spiritual. And yet she, again, uh, is locked into this natural frame of reference. And she says, sure, I'll play along. Give me some living water, and then I won't have to come draw water anymore, right? So Jesus gives us real life. But part of what happens here is that Jesus has to shift his tactics. And so we see a third truth in this passage. Jesus meets our real needs. Jesus meets our real needs. So far, this conversation, it's a bit odd, him offering to give her living water. Uh, but we could imagine a conversation more or less like this taking place in Safeway or Costco, right? It's not that strange so far. Uh, you guys have run into strange people and had strange conversations. Not that strange so far. But here's where it changes directions. Jesus says, okay, go get your husband and I'll give you this living water. But it's clear he's hit on a sore spot now. The woman's, uh, in verse 17, it's the shortest response she gives in the whole thing. If you look at all the things she says to Jesus, this is far and away the shortest. She says, I have no husband. She's trying to shut down the conversation. Just, nope, don't want to talk about that. And then Jesus' response is gentle and patient. He begins by saying, you're right. You're telling the truth. You're not hiding it from me. You don't have a husband. But there's more to the story. You've been married five times, and now you're living with a guy who's not your husband. What you said is true. So he's being gentle. Now, there's an interesting background to this story in the Old Testament. 
just like in cowboy movies, there's this traditional showdown scene in the end, right, where the bad guy and the good guy square off on Main Street for a, 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 a showdown, I guess, a draw, whatever you call it. Uh, you know what I'm talking about in cowboy movies. Just like there's those traditional scenes in cowboy movies, in the Old Testament, there's a traditional scene where a man meets his future wife at a well. There's variations, just like in cowboy movies, but it's this traditional scene. Abraham sends his chief servant who finds uh, Rebekah to marry Isaac. And then Jacob meets Rachel at the well and in a feat of strength pulls the stone off the well and waters Rachel's sheep. And then Moses drives off the shepherds who are harassing Miriam at the well. Uh, it helps her. And so there's this traditional scene where many of the patriarchs met their bride-to-be at the well. And now here at the well is this woman who has been married five times. Perhaps she is a widow five times over, but it's unlikely. At least in the rabbinic literature, the Jewish literature from a few hundred years later, um, being married more than three times, even if for widowing uh, or being a widow is, is discouraged. And even if she is a widow five times over, which seems pretty unlikely, living with a man who is not her husband now was not acceptable. And so this really seems to fill out part of the story. As far as we can tell, women would have come in the evening to draw water. And typically the women all would have come together. Presumably it was a sort of social time, right? When all the women came together to draw water in the evening. And yet this woman's out in the hottest part of the day by herself to draw water. Perhaps trying to avoid the crowds, perhaps trying to avoid overhearing too loud gossip about her and the man she's living with. This seems to be, as far as we can tell from the scant details here, a woman who has spent her whole adult life looking for love. Looking for someone to love her and a man to cherish her and care for her. And yet, for whatever reason now, six times over, that has not ended in a uh, happy marriage that she's looking for. And here she is at the well, and she meets a man. And yet this man doesn't just marry her. Uh, it's not a romantic need that's being met here. Jesus drives deeper to her deepest spiritual needs. Friends, this is what Jesus does. He meets our real needs. What is your deepest need? What is your, your deepest need? Is it a thirst for acceptance? To succeed, to be well thought of by your peers, to be well thought of by your parents? Perhaps like this woman, it's a thirst for love. You think if I just find the right relationship, things will finally click. I don't know exactly what your deepest need is, but here is the truth for all of you, for all of us, that Jesus offers to meet our deepest needs. He says, the water I give, this living water, quenches your thirst. It meets your real needs. And actually, this whole discussion here, it foreshadows when Jesus meets these needs. If you read through the whole Gospel of John and keep these details in mind, here this story is happening at the sixth hour. Now, the next time something happens at the sixth hour is when Jesus is crucified in John 19. Here we hear that Jesus is weary. And in John 19, John tells us Jesus is weary on the cross. Here Jesus is thirsty. And remember on the cross, again, Jesus is thirsty. And he's offered wine mixed with vinegar to drink. 
Here, Jesus sets aside his own needs, his own weariness and thirst and hunger. He sets that aside to care for the needs of someone else. And that's what happens supremely on the cross. Jesus sets aside his own needs to care for others. Now, there's a fourth point in this dialogue. It do, the story doesn't end there, just Jesus meeting needs. There's a fourth truth that we need to look at. And that is simply this. Jesus leads us in real worship. Jesus leads us in real worship. At this point in the conversation, when Jesus reveals that somehow he knows about her previous marriages, somehow, and he's just a Jewish man walking through the town, how has he heard about this? Somehow he knows. But the woman is a bit like a cornered animal. Her previous marriages is the last thing she wants to discuss. And she'll, she'll do anything to get out of talking about it. So she concedes. She says, I see you're some sort of a prophet that you know this. But instead of, of, of then dealing with these issues, she says, let me ask you about this really old theological controversy. It's like putting your finger on a spiritual moral issue that has to be dealt with. And someone says, well, let's, let's talk about Calvinism and how free will works, that it's, it's a guise for trying to avoid dealing with the issue at hand. So she says, can I ask you about this old controversy? Where should we worship? Is it on Mount Gerizim here? Or is it at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem? See, if you look back at Deuteronomy chapter 12, uh, Moses tells Israel that when they enter the promised land, God will choose a place and all the, the nation is supposed to come worship in one place. Well, Samaritans only used the Pentateuch, that is Genesis through Deuteronomy as their scripture. They didn't use anything past that. Joshua, 1st, uh, 2nd uh, Kings, all of that, the Psalms, the prophets, none of that did they treat as scripture, just Genesis through Deuteronomy. And so if they just say, well, God's going to choose one place, they're going to they're think, well, surely that one place is in our land. On the other hand, the Jews, of course, read the stories about David buying a place for the temple, Solomon building it. The Jews used the Psalms that we've been studying in the evening that time and again celebrate going up to Zion, the temple, to worship. And so at the same time that Ezra and Nehemiah were rebuilding the temple and the city of Jerusalem, the Samaritans were, were building a temple up on Mount Gerizim near Shechem. And so this woman is using this old theological controversy, which church are we supposed to go to, to avoid dealing with this issue that needs dealt with. Now, Jesus doesn't ignore her question, but he also doesn't let it sidetrack him from what's really important. His answer is threefold. First, he blatantly takes one side. He doesn't say everything's simply relative. He blatantly takes one side. He says, salvation is from the Jews. That is to say, the whole story of the Old Testament, from Abraham uh, to the Jerusalem temple to Nehemiah and Ezra rebuilding it, that whole story, it's all part of God's big plan to save the world. And he says this whole story is preparatory for Jesus' own coming. He says the hour is coming and is now at hand. Something is about to happen. This whole story is coming to its climax. He says, no, you need to have that story. Uh, salvation is from the Jews. That's all part of this. And so, but, but, but something's about to happen. The story's about to come to its climax. And so the debate, in a sense, is just about to be outdated. It's like still arguing about new Coke versus old Coke. Some of you remember that controversy. Other of you can ask your parents in the car on the way home. But uh, new Coke, old Coke, it's like you're still hung up on this old debate that's now outdated. 
Second, Jesus says there's this fundamental theological truth that you got to get your head around to make sense of this. And that's this. God is spirit. God is spirit. And that means that God's not tied to a specific place. He's not material like we are. He's not limited. Our bodies can be in one place and not another. But he says God is spirit. And so it's not tied to one specific place where you can meet God. Remember, this is what uh, David says. Where can I go and hide from you in the Psalms? This is what Jonah says. He says, I tried to run away from you, but I can't escape from your presence. That God is spirit, and so he is present everywhere. And the third thing Jesus says is, accordingly then, true worship to the true God who is spirit is not about this place versus that place, but rather it's about worshiping in spirit and in truth. Worshiping in spirit, it's not the external place, but it's the internal. Is our spirit communing with God himself when we worship? Or are our mouths just singing the songs and our mind wandering off somewhere else thinking about lunch or what's going to be on TV this afternoon or whatever else we're thinking about? Are we worshiping in spirit? And the same with truth, worshiping in truth. Are we worshiping with sincerity and integrity? Or are we just going through the motions? And this raises an important question for us. What kind of worship do we here at the chapel want to characterize us? What kind of worship do we want to characterize Wiser Lake Chapel? There's nothing wrong with traditions and liturgies. I like traditional worship and I like liturgy. But if it's just an external formal thing that we go through, our worship is just as dead as going off to a temple somewhere. It becomes cold and formal if it's not matched with the internal, with worship in spirit and in truth. On the other hand, I have friends who spent time in Papua New Guinea as missionaries, and they talked about uh, you know, worshiping with one tribe that had actual guitar strings tied together because they didn't have replacement guitar strings. Can you imagine how bad a guitar sounds when the strings are tied together? And yet if you're worshiping in spirit and in truth, it's true worship. Well, this woman has one final evasion in verse 25. She can't debate with Jesus' answer. And so she says, well, yes, the, when the Messiah comes, he'll know for sure and he'll settle the question. And again, I've been in theological discussions with people where they use the same tactic to shut down the conversation. Well, I guess only God knows for sure. That's code word for I'm done talking. I don't really want to have this discussion any further. This woman thought she'd played the trump card, and yet Jesus outplays her. I, who speak to you, am he. I am the Messiah. I am the promised hope for the Jews and for the Samaritans and for the whole world. I am the gift that God has given, that whoever believes in me will not perish but have eternal life. Interestingly, this is the only time that God reveals himself as the Messiah in the Gospel of John until his crucifixion. And she, uh, uh, this isn't simply a, an abstract truth. Jesus is saying this demands a response. He's calling the question. It demands a response. How are you going to react? And she does respond. She forgets her water jar and she takes off running to town. And she starts telling these people that she was ashamed to draw water with. These people that she was hiding from. She starts running up and down the town saying, guys, come. 
I think I found the Messiah. I think I found the Christ. I think this is the person who can answer all of our hopes and needs. See, she does believe in Jesus, and the living water is already flowing up in her. And it's going out to others. She wants to share this new life that she has found with others. Friends, Jesus shows us real acceptance. He shows us real acceptance, whatever our background. But he doesn't leave us there. He deals with us. He gives us real life. Life shaped by grace, by God's gift. And Jesus digs beneath the surface to meet our real needs, to deal with the stuff going on way inside that we don't want to talk about or tell others about. And this process culminates with Jesus leading us into real worship. Jesus provides access to God who is spirit. So that when we worship and our worship is led by Jesus, it is true worship in spirit and in truth. And so the question is called, how will you respond? Will you try to evade like this woman does initially? Friends, this is your true hope. This is where your true needs are met, where your thirst is quenched, where true life is found. And if you already recognize that, then we must respond like this woman. We must run to tell others. We must not miss opportunities for spiritual conversation. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you are our King and our Lord. You are a gift from God given so that the world may not perish, but believe in you and have eternal life. I ask even now that through your Spirit you would be at work in each of our hearts. There are some who need their deepest spiritual thirst finally met, and so I ask that you would be wrestling with them, drawing them to yourself. Just as you didn't let this woman evade you, don't let people's hearts evade you, even now. Others of us, Lord, need the courage that comes as your uh, living water, as your spirit wells up within us, courage to share this good news with others. That we might follow Jesus' model of instigating spiritual conversations, even this week at school, at work, with our friends that we might share with others this good news. Come, I think I found the answer. Gracious Lord, give us your spirit, living water that wells up within us. Amen.